morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to morning worship at Hillhead, wherever we are this morning, and a special welcome to Charlie and Graham uh, joining us today. Our service this morning will be led by Katrina, but we'll also hear the voices of Elaine and Graham, Paul H., Rachel and Jeff. Our musician this morning is Paul. And in a moment or two, Benjamin and Bardia are going to light our candle for us. We'll be sharing in communion later in this service, so please have something ready to eat and drink when we reach that point in the service. Then this evening at 7pm, Katrina will be leading evening prayers, during which we'll be invited to light a candle uh, as part of that service. So please have one ready if you'd like to join in. Then, as you have seen from uh, the February edition of The Key, uh, there will be a group meeting to explore baptism and church membership over the next few weeks. The first meeting will be held via Zoom on Friday the 18th of February at 7.30pm. And if you haven't already spoken to Katrina but would like to be part of that group, then please contact her as soon as possible. Uh, just a wee notice about Sunday school, Emma is putting together a survey for parents and grandparents of our Sunday school children to get an idea of how you want to progress with Sunday school over the next wee while. For example, what days and times might suit you best for an in-person Sunday school. Now that survey will come out attached to next week's Sunday school lesson email. So just look out for that because Emma would love to hear from you about what would work best for you and for the children. Just uh, one piece of family news. Uh, we're really delighted to see Sheila doing so well after surgery earlier this week. So it's great to see you out and about, Sheila. Uh, and uh, it's just wonderful that it's all going so smoothly. But we were very sad to hear uh, this week that Sheila's sister-in-law, Madge, had died. Uh, some of us oldies will remember Sheila's brother, Ian, very well. And uh, Ian's uh, wife, Madge, unfortunately died this week after a long illness. Please remember Ian and Sheila and Liz and all the family at this really sad time. But now we're going to hand over to Benjamin and Bardia and ask them to light our candle. As we gather for worship, let us join, let us join together to become the body of Christ. Christ is a light that lights our way. May we glimpse Christ like this day.
And having sung God's praises, let's come to God in prayer. We pray together. And after I've led us, we will share in the Lord's Prayer. Please feel free to join in in the version and language which for you is the most natural. God, who calls us together, who welcomes us just as we are, and who promised is to meet us, we thank you for the mystery that is worship. Our words can never be good enough. Yet you delight to listen as we do our best. Our minds will never understand properly. Yet you enable us to catch glimpses of eternal truth. Our hearts will never love fully. Yet you trust us to love you and to love one another, even as we are loved. As we gather, we open ourselves to you, inviting your spirit to show us new insights, to draw to our notice the ways in which we have fallen short and the ways in which we have flourished, to remind us of truths we have half forgotten and to remind us of promises we need to remember. God, whom we meet in Jesus, please accept all we do and all we are, because we offer ourselves along with our words in his name. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
First reading from Luke chapter 10 at verse 25. A lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Our second reading this morning is from Luke chapter 17 from verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, 10 lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to them, him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well.
those of us who've been able to join together during January, we looked at some of the main themes that you could discern from a careful reading of the gospel attributed to Luke. Among those are the universal reach of the good news, the ethic of love that leads to welcome, acceptance and inclusion. And right from the start, a Jesus who breaks taboos and crosses boundaries of race and gender and status. Unlike other Gospels in where we meet a Jesus who has encounters with women of other races who force him to challenge his own previously unquestioned biases, Luke's Jesus seems to be comfortable mixing with people of different races right from the beginning. I think it's helpful for us to, us to keep in mind as we explore over the next few weeks some of the parables that are unique to Luke, what it is that he has in mind when he tells us his story about Jesus. Why does Luke choose to include these stories that nobody else does? And how does our understanding of Luke or our speculation about Luke affect the way we read or hear them? And today we begin with probably one of the best known and best loved of all Jesus parables, one that in the English language at least is usually referred to as the Good Samaritan. It's so familiar that I think there is a real danger that we think we know everything it has to tell us. We've heard it all before. If you're my age or thereabouts, you will remember in the 1970s when people like substituted the Samaritan for a punk rocker because that seemed like it was a, a good way of updating the story and keeping the message. But actually, I think we need to try and come at it a little bit fresh, commit from a slightly different direction if we're to find something new to ponder. And I think it's helpful to even before we look at the story, go back and think about Luke and his implied reader, as well as what is being recorded here. The scholars seem to agree that the writer of this gospel was almost certainly an educated Gentile believer in Jesus who was writing for other Gentile readers. And that is really important. And his gospel, his account, is the story of a Jewish man called Jesus, who is telling a story in this case to a Jewish audience. And that is also really important. So a Gentile telling the story of a Jewish man talking to Jewish people, to people who are not Jewish. Certainly, I hadn't appreciated until some of the work that I did this week, just how Jewish this story is that Jesus tells. And his original hearers would have had a pretty good idea where they thought this story was going to go when he began telling it. And I think if we're not careful, if we don't look at some of this stuff, we're left with a, a really good story and really good lessons we can draw from it without really grasping how shocking and powerful it was when it was first told. We need a little bit of contextual information. We're going to start off with um, some facts about Judaism. 
and this exists even to this day. I was doing a little bit of looking around online um, to try and see how this goes. And I found a Jewish website where people were asking questions based on precisely this situation. There is, according to the Talmud, which is the traditions, an order of precedence amongst Jews that goes like this. The priest, the Levite, and the Israelite. And then it goes further. There is the Israelite born in an illicit sexual union. There is the Natin. Those are the people who are descendants of the Gibeonites who came into Israel at the time of Joshua. Then comes the proselytes. And finally, the freed slaves. There's also a really curious little twist in the Talmud that's perhaps just worth keeping at the back of our mind. It says, if the priest, the highest class, is an ignoramus and the freed slave is a scholar, has knowledge and understanding, then the slave takes precedent over the priest. So high birth brings with it expectations, but it doesn't guarantee intelligence or integrity. I'll just leave that one hanging as we think about our own context. But in this Jewish um, caste system, there's a clear boundary on how far it goes. Who is in and who is out? So if you are a Samaritan, you're out. If you are a Gentile, one of the other nations, you are out. It's very easy to decide who's in and who's out. But the important thing to try and keep in mind as we listen to the parable is the beginning of that hierarchy. Priest, Levite, Israelite. Commentators make it very clear that the ordinary Israelites of Jesus' time were not fans of the religious authorities. They actively disliked them. They often despised them. Why? Well, for one thing, they saw them as collaborators with the occupying Romans because Judaism was a licit religion under Roman occupation. But also they perceived them to be hypocritical and oppressive. So anybody that could tell a story that made them look bad was going to be really good for those who were listening. It'd be nothing better than hearing about a, a dodgy priest or a corrupt Levite or an unkind one of these people. Of course, we have to remember that in Monks Jesus' original hearers was an expert in the law, quite possibly then a Levite, for whom hearing that would be pretty uncomfortable and probably quite upsetting. But the people listening to Jesus tell the story would have had definite expectations of how that story would unfold. But of course, for Luke's original hearers, this is not their, their tale. This is not their background, their context. And whilst they may be aware of the distrust of the religious elite, and whilst they may be able to detect some parallels in their own culture, this isn't a story about them, and it isn't a story for them, because they're outsiders. 
And again, it's useful to keep that in mind as we come to listen to the story. So let's do that now. It begins with a man about whom we know absolutely nothing, who is traveling along a road that was known to be dangerous. Mugging and robbery were quite commonplace. It just happened. It didn't even make the news anymore. In this story, the victim is stripped of his clothes, which is not kind of normal mugging behavior, so I'm told in that context. So why is that recorded? Well, without his clothes, you would have no way of knowing if he was highborn or lowborn, if he was a Jew or a Samaritan or a Roman or a Greek. You could know nothing about him. And we're told he's left half dead. And that little phrase is really important because it would be only by getting up close that you'd be able to tell, is this man still alive and badly injured? Or actually, is this an abandoned corpse? And so we have the scene set. This hapless, unrecognisable victim lies in the road. And somebody comes along. And it is a priest, the highest caste of Jewish society. I have always been taught and I have preached time without number that such a person would be prohibited from touching a corpse because it would render them ceremonially unclean. And if they'd been on the way to do their work, they wouldn't have been able to do it as a result. And, and that is true. To this day, a devout Cohen is not permitted to touch the dead body of their own relatives who have died. They have to stand outside the cemetery as, uh, when the funeral takes place. But this week, I discovered that in the Talmud, there is an exception to this. What is termed the corpse of obligation? This is the body of a person who's died and it's discovered all alone and there is nobody to care for it. In such a case, a priest is not only permitted but is expected to attend to the body. And he won't become ritually unclean as a result of so doing. It's not part of Jewish law, but it is an act born of compassion that is part of the tradition. Whether it actually happens, we don't know, but that was what tradition dictated. And so a priest seeing a man who was half dead might reasonably be expected to stop and go and take a look. And if he's dead, then he will take care of him. But that isn't what happens. He socially distances himself. He crosses the road. He carries on along his way. He's not breaking the law. He's abiding by the law very strictly. But he's not doing what love demands and what tradition expects of him. And those who heard Jesus, perhaps especially the teacher, the expert in the law, would have known this. And probably the ordinary Israelites in the audience would have loved it. Absolutely brilliant. Here is a priest who is so concerned about his own purity that he is uncaring and lacks compassion. 
though we need to remember that Jesus passes no judgment on this, he simply notes the happening. And then, as they might have expected, the next person along is a Levite, the next rank down. And he behaves in the same way. Well, yes, think the crowd, that's just what we'd expect. Hypocritical, heartless religious leaders, all law and no love. And so now they're on tenterhooks. They're waiting for what comes next because they know that next will come the Israelite, someone like them. And this person will be the hero of the hour. Does that kind of resonate? That we always would quite like the hero of the story to be someone like us. So imagine. Next came a Samaritan. What? Not even somebody in that fold or that list of people who are in. Someone who's even worse than the religious leaders. It's actually one of our sworn enemies. Have we heard Jesus rightly? Yes, we have. And so rather than finding themselves, the ordinary Jews, as the heroes and the religious authorities as the villains, they have to rethink something that they thought they knew. This isn't what they'd expected. A priest, a Levite and an Israelite went into a bar. No, it wasn't that kind of a story. They have to face the unpalatable truth that if they appear in the story at all, then they must be that hapless victim lying on the road because they aren't the priest, they aren't the Levite, and they most certainly are not the Samaritan. It might have been no great surprise that the religious leaders would let them down. But the thought that a despised foreigner might help? What on earth is that about? And of course, in the story, this Samaritan goes way above and beyond the call of duty. They care for them. They put them on their own beast. They take them to an inn. They care for them. When they have to go away, they pay. And they say, I'll pay you when I come back because they don't want this person to end up in debt to the hotelier. And in a, the culture they had of shame and honour, this would be hugely significant because actually they, the victim, technically are in debt to that Samaritan forever. Not an easy story to hear then if you're on the inside. What about Luke's readers and Luke's hearers? The people who are on the outside who discover that the hero of this story is actually someone like them. How might that feel? We are decent, honourable people. We're all doing our best to follow Jesus. So actually, we're not like those original hearers that Luke told his story for. Because for the most part, at least, we're not outsiders. And even if sometimes we feel like outsiders or are in some measure outsiders, 
we're not likely to be despised and vilified for who we are in the same way as the Samaritans were. More likely, we find ourselves in the role of Jesus hearers, who are so steeped in the cultures we've grown up in, that we will have unconscious biases about who is in and who is out, who is good and who is bad. Who we might cast in the role of baddies and goodies may differ among us, but I expect all of us would really quite like it if the hero or the heroine or the shero or whatever phrase you prefer to use could be a bit like us. I can't help wondering if the original hearers of the story wish that that hero could have been anyone but a Samaritan. And I wonder who we might see in that kind of a way. And this week, as I've reflected on the story, I became increasingly uncomfortable with its familiar title, The Good Samaritan. Because it struck me as it has never struck me before that I have accepted the implication that your average Samaritan wasn't good. He was, but on the whole, they weren't. My guess is that many of us at some time or other will have heard negative or pejorative comments about our gender, our race, our nationality, our profession, or any other aspect of who we are, which gets followed by something like, well, of course, I don't mean you, or this isn't personal, but actually, if I refer to somebody as a nice whatever, I do mean them. And yes, I am making saying something that is hugely personal. So I have to remind myself that this is not a story about a good Samaritan, someone who was different from a stereotype. This is a story about a person who was a neighbour. That they were a Samaritan is important for shock value. This is not the person that the hearers would have expected to be the neighbour. But for me, at least, I need to be aware of the danger of calling somebody essentially a good baddie, as if that's somehow okay. But it isn't, because it doesn't line up with that ethic of welcome, acceptance and inclusion. And I will be really interested to hear from people whose first language is not English, how that story is titled in their languages to see whether that same good baddie is how it's portrayed or if other titles are used. Very briefly, we heard another story and I'm really grateful to Anne last week in the evening service for reminding me of this one as it was shared as part of World Leprosy Day. We have Jesus on the border between Samaria and Galilee. He seems to have spent a lot of time around that area and have spent time in Samaria as well as in Galilee. And in the distance is a group of men who start calling out to him. 
And, and that's quite predictable, really. It's a healing story. It's a healing story on a grand scale. There are 10 people all affected by leprosy. And Jesus at a distance says, you're healed, go off and see the priests. The equivalent of us saying, go and see your GP, get this checked out that you really are better. And so off they go. One of them turns around and comes back. This one, we are told, and he was a Samaritan. That is still there, that labelling. Jesus doesn't call him a Samaritan. Jesus calls him a foreigner. And maybe, maybe that is significant. I don't know. But what we do have in this story is the outsider commended for their faith. Jesus sees differently. He sees past the nationality, the race, whatever, to the person. And as we've already been seeing in Luke, we had a similar story with the Roman centurion right at the start of the gospel. That Jesus actually looks past the, the, the taboos to see the people, to recognise the faith within them. I started off by saying um, about the fact that other gospels portray Jesus differently. And I have certainly preached time and time again about Jesus' encounters with women who challenged his unconscious biases. And I'm sure Jesus did have unconscious biases. But Luke's story is different. We have a Jesus who goes through Samaria, who encounters and engages with people of other nations and worldviews openly and generously treats them with dignity and commends them for their faith. I could go on for a very long time, but you're probably relieved to know I'm nearly at the end now. But so many thoughts and questions to take away and think about more from this story is so familiar and yet so complex. So I think where I want to end is by going back to the question that the expert the good person asked Jesus and to think of some questions that we might like to ask of ourselves. When I become aware of my own previously unconscious biases, what am I going to do about it? We all have them. We can't help it. But when we realise, what are we going to do about it? Another question, who are the unexpected people, maybe even the shocking people who demonstrate to me gospel values? Who are the people who are the equivalent of the outsider in that story? And then a third question, if I met somebody who to me was the equivalent of a Samaritan affected by leprosy, how would I respond to them? And as I typed that question, I found myself thinking, actually, not if I met such a person, but when at some point I do meet such a person, how will I respond? After Jesus had told the story and after the expert had said to him, 
the answer was that the neighbour was the one who showed mercy to him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. And I believe he says the same to us. We come together in our prayers for others and in our prayers for each other. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, help us to be your feet, walking beside those in need. Help us to be your hands to clothe, feed and shelter them. You came for the least, the lost and the last of this world. Lord, Hear our prayer. Lord Jesus, you teach us to love you and to love our neighbour. The migrant, is she my neighbour? Those in poverty, are they my neighbours? Victims of wars or conflicts across the world, are they my neighbours? Those who face racism or discrimination, are they my neighbours too? And those who are disabled or frailed, are they also my neighbours? Lord Jesus, you teach us that they are all my neighbours. You call them your friends. You invite them to your table. You invite them to break bread with you and to eat. 
Lord Jesus, you teach us to love you and to love our neighbours. The distressed young African-American man, struggling with his demons, crying out for help on the sidewalk of downtown Washington, D.C. He is my neighbour, but I cross to the other side of the street, don't want to get involved. I've got a conference to get to. The elderly couple, bewildered in a busy hospital corridor, looking for instructions to where they want to go. But I'm in a hurry. I'm late for a Zoom call. The young woman in front of me in the cafe queue, embarrassed when she's realised she's forgotten her money. I sigh with irritation at the delay until the pensioner behind me offers to pay for her coffee. And the homeless man sitting at the entrance of the supermarket, his cup beside him, asking for any spare change. I become suddenly engrossed in an imaginary text message to avoid making eye contact as I brush past him. Lord Jesus, too often I forget that these are my neighbours, but you call them your friends. You invite them to your table to break bread and to eat. Lord Jesus, we bring to you this morning our neighbours. We bring to you Mar Marion Carson, support coordinator of Glasgow City Mission, Bowtree Hill Baptist Church, Irvin Bray Baptist Church, Shetland, Bridge of Dawn Baptist Church in Aberdeen. And from our own church community, we bring to you particularly the finance group, Steve, Neil, Anita and Bonnie, Dr. Beth, Mary, Janet and Roger, Joyce and Morag, Jen, Andrew, Carl and Aidan, Elaine, Graham, Freya and Sarah, John. Lord Jesus, neighbour to all, help us to persevere in love. Help us to restore dignity to the suffering. Help us to build a society based not on exclusion, but on community. Where all are welcome at your table, and where you call them all your friends. This we pray. Amen.
Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus ate meals with many different groups of people. On one occasion, a huge crowd enjoyed a picnic thanks to the generosity of a child. On another, he dined in the home of a Pharisee, where a woman anointed his feet. And yet another time, a tax collector was moved to generosity after Jesus had invited himself for dinner. But the meal we remember best is the last one before his arrest and execution. A ritual meal, remembering the goodness of God in freeing the Israelites from slavery. And so we gather in small groups or alone, scattered across a city and around the globe. Yet we are connected both by the wonders of technology and by a shared desire to follow Jesus. Jesus invites us to a meal, at least in token, where everyday foodstuff becomes sign and symbol of the heavenly banquet to which all are invited and where all will be made welcome. Since we are learning from Luke, let's listen to how he tells the story. When the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So let's pray. 
Jesus Christ, son of the living God, who invites all to share in your banquet. We thank you for the welcome and acceptance you extend to each one of us. We thank you for this simple act of remembering and refreshing. And we ask you to bless us with this food and drink, sign and symbol of your covenant grace. Amen. Luke tells us that Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Luke tells us that Jesus took a cup after supper, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Jesus, you told shocking stories with unexpected heroes to teach us your timeless truths. Christ, your own shocking story of rejection and execution surprises us with new life and new hope. Saviour, redeemer and friend, help us to write surprising new chapters in our own stories of discipleship and faith. Amen. So may God bless us with compassion for all people, courage to speak truth 
and openness of heart and mind as we continue to grow in grace today and always. Amen. Amen.